Welcome to episode 33 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor. So this week, as promised, we're very excited to have the film director Kevin MacDonald with us to talk about his new movie, The Mauritanian. Many of you already know Kevin's work. It spans his Oscar-winning documentary, One Day in September, about the murder of Israeli athletes at the 1972 Munich Olympics, to Touching the Void and The Last King of Scotland. The Mauritanian, that launched on Easter Friday on Amazon Prime, stars Taha Rahim as the Guantanamo Mauritanian prisoner Mohamedou Ulslahi, and Jodie Foster as the humanitarian lawyer Nancy Hollander, who eventually gets him out of Guantanamo Bay, but it takes 14 years. It also has a brilliant star turn by Benedict Cumberbatch as the American military prosecutor who throws in the towel when he discovers that Mohamedou has been tortured continuously for over 70 days. It's absolutely brilliant, and Kevin is here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. How are you? Very well. Good morning, Kevin. And first, congratulations on the most extraordinary piece of cinema. It's wonderful to see Jodie Foster back in action at her very best. And Tahir Rahim is sensational. He conveyed his fear and anxiety so viscerally that at times I could hardly bear to watch it. Now, the film is based on Mohamedou Ulslahi's Guantanamo Diary, which he was encouraged to publish by Nancy Hollander. So can you start by telling us how you first came across the diary? and the story, and what made you embark on filming such a harrowing and appalling tale? Well, the, when the book came out in 2016, there was quite a lot of publicity about it. And uh, I think I was I read some reviews and maybe read an extract somewhere, and I didn't read it. But then a year or two later, I think towards the end of 2017, Benedict Cumberbatch got in touch with me, and he, he had optioned the rights to the book. And... Uh, he said, give this a read, see what you think. Is there a film? I read it, I thought it was the most amazing document. It's the only book still up to this this day, I think, written inside Guantanamo and published while the prisoner was still, you know, was still there, was still a captive. But I, I couldn't see it as a film. I didn't see how you made this, this, this kind of catalogue of his, you know, terrible treatment into a movie. Uh, and they said to me, the producer said to me, just speak to Mohamedou. And that was the thing that that uh, convinced me there was a great film here because he is an extraordinary character. He was he, he lives in Mauritania. He's still there. He can't really leave. He can't get a visa to go anywhere because once you're a Guantanamo prisoner, you're always a Guantanamo prisoner, I think, in the in the eyes of most Western countries. But he is just witty, incredibly bright, incredibly wide range of cultural references He's a great person to have a chat with. And I thought, what an amazing character. I want to make a film about this character. And then I spent two or three years trying to figure out how do you how do you do that? How do you make a film that might reach a mainstream audience about such an appalling thing? Yeah, he, do, he does come across as absolutely extraordinary. I mean, there's a moving bit at the end when he sings uh, along to Bob Dylan. And you kind of can, it's, it's I mean, I'm, this is probably get out of hand, this analogy, but a bit like Nelson Mandela, that you can spend 14 years in Guantanamo you can also have this horrific thing of winning your appeal and then remaining in prison for another seven or eight years under President Obama. And yet you come out of it with, as you say, this kind of air of, I don't know, optimism. The Mandela comparison, I don't think is necessarily out of hand. But I, funnily enough, we shot this film in mostly in South Africa. And myself and all the rest of the crew and Mohamedou, we all went to Robben Island and saw Mandela's cell. And two things were immediately apparent. One is that the Americans had learned how to squeeze the last bit of humanity out of the prison experience. You know, that, 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 that when you go to Roman Island, it's a much 
nicer, kinder place, you know, in the sense that you've got a garden, there's window, there's natural light. Uh, there's there's some sense of community. You're allowed to be with your fellow prisoners. Guantanamo was solitary confinement for most people all the time. Uh, there was no natural light. There was minimal exercise, and if it, if you did get to exercise, it was on your on your own. Um, so, oh, in those awful squares of where you can't even see anything, and you have to lie down on the floor and try and look at the one-inch gap under the canvas strips that divide yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely, so totally de dehumanising. Yes, and, totally. And I mean, the amazing thing about Guantanamo is that it's really in a Caribbean paradise. You know, it's in Cuba, obviously, yeah. with its yards from the Caribbean Sea, with beautiful beaches, and this, and 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 the, the guards all go surfing on their in their time off. You know, it's it, it's a the, but the guards. I'm sorry, the the prisoners don't see any of that. They can see the occasional seagull going over. They can hear the sea but they can't see the sea. And many of them didn't even know that they were in Cuba for years and years and years. That was sort of a secret from them that, that you know, the guards couldn't tell them where they were. But the reason that that um, I think Muhammadu survived and survived with his sort of his humanity and his humor intact is because at a certain point he decided not to hate. That was, I think, the turning point for him to realize that actually I can be, I can treat the guards around me well even if they're not treating me well, and I can be interested in them. And he's a man of incredible curiosity. So he would talk to the guards about whatever they wanted to talk to about, a country and Western music, the Bible, obviously, a lot of them were Christian and wanted to talk about the Bible. So he would go off and listen to the country and Western music, or they would play it to him, or they'd give him a Bible, and he would read it, and then he'd debate with them about it. And I think what happened then was that he became human in the eyes of his guards. One of his guards, who we see depicted briefly in the film, actually became such good friends with him that he converted to Islam and he went recently on holiday with Muhammadu in Mauritania. They're very, very good friends still. So I think that sense of him being able to see other people's humanity and to not to choose not to hate, that's the secret to why he's managed to come out as you know with his humanity intact. I was going to ask, ask you about that because this is that incredible courtroom scene mm. where he gives this extraordinary speech. Was that based on actual transcripts about how he yes. learned to forgive and therefore he was free? Yes, that's that, that that speech is almost word for word what he actually said. Yeah, that 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 court that court scene is incredible because of course it's a case which he's not even allowed to be present at physically. He's uh, in a little box room in Guantanamo appearing by video on a screen in the court. And I mean Guantanamo itself is it's, I mean, I hadn't, I had seen photographs of it before and things, but I hadn't realised just quite how horrific it was. As I said, it's, I think, designed to be as alienating and dehumanising as possible. And, you know, one of the interesting things about, about filming uh, in that prison was normally in prison films, you've got all these scenes of everyone trooping down to get their porridge or, you know, you know, what do they call it? Um, Mucking out, or whatever. what do they call it? Slopping um, out. Slopping out, that's what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> Mucking out, yeah, that's with horses. Anyway, um, so, 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 but in Guantanamo, it's a completely solitary experience. And the, the only people that Muhammadu talked to were people he talked to through the walls. So you don't actually see anyone. You don't touch anyone for all those, all those years. And it's just metal and, you know, non-natural light. And yeah, it's, 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 horrendous and nobody should be kept like that. Some clever lawyer figured out that because it was only leased from the Cubans, that American law perhaps didn't have to apply if you didn't want it to. And so that was the perfect place to 
keep these these prisoners who you, who you didn't really intend to put through the legal system. Talking about legal, you know, it's one thing to have a book, but a big time movie like this. Did you have lawyers all over it all the time? And was did you have to take things out? Was there a huge restriction on what you could and couldn't say? No, actually not that much because everything that's in the film about the mistreatment in Guantanamo is is already documented, not just in his book, but in legal documents that have been released by the US government subsequently. So they couldn't, they couldn't tell us, no, you don't put that in. But they have continued to, you know, certain, certain journalists in America in particular have spoken to their friends in the CIA who have, you know, suggested to them, well, you know, the filmmakers have been taken in by Mohamedou. You know, we know he's still guilty and we just couldn't pin it on him. And if they knew what we knew, which of course is really appalling if you ask me, because, you know, here's someone who they've had, they've had in prison for 14, 15 years. They've spent millions of dollars sending agents around the world to try and find evidence against him. And they have come up with precisely nothing. If they had yeah, not something... Not a single charge. Not a single charge. If they had something, they would they would have used it. So for them to still suggest today that in some way, you know, oh, he's a bad one, I think is, you know, really turns my stomach. So just um, to go back to the film itself, I mean, clearly, I think this is Jodie Foster's first film for 10 years. Something like that. I think because she's done she's a couple sort of tiny little things, but yeah, yeah she's she very pivoting. fussy. <laughs> yes. Well, that's that was... You've, You've you've seen the subtext of my question, Kevin. How what what was it about fussy Jodie Foster that turned her on to the Mauritanian? That why did she want to do this movie? How did you get in touch with her? What was she like to work work with? Well, the flippant answer is that she liked the title. So I think she got the email which had the script attached. She said, "What is the Mauritanian? What the hell is that?" And she read it, and I think she's quite a political person. Yes, and. Uh, so she thought, this is a story I, I want to be part of telling. And she also, she's a, she's tremendously um, grounded and not at all vain, you know, which are not necessarily two characteristics that most actors share. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> and uh, she always knew this is this is not a film about me. This is not about, this is not about my character. This is about Mohamedou. She, she also actually told me, well, the first time I met her, we spent hours chatting about the, the script. And she, her, she said to me that briefly as a teenager, when she, she was a teenager, her mother had converted to Islam. And yeah, yeah in Hollywood in the 70s, her mother was also her manager. And uh, so she went to the mosque a few times with her mother and she was always fascinated by it. So she had, and her mother had just recently died three weeks before I met her. So I think there was some connection there as well, emotionally, that she sort of, you know, she was reminded of a period of her life. I was nervous because, you know, she's a legend and I haven't yeah, worked exactly. with any other, you know, real proper legends. And um, you imagine that she's, you know, worked with Scorsese and worked with Robert Zemeckis and Spielberg and whoever, you know, she's worked with everybody. And um, you sort of wonder how you're going to measure up. But she is, she's incredibly helpful, incredibly diligent, comes prepared, never tells you you're doing it wrong, which is, <laughs> which is important when you're a director. <laughs> so your actor starts rebelling and telling you you're not doing it right. Um, but, uh, and she would always do every note that you would give her, no matter how sort of, stupid it might have seemed, she would try and achieve it. And she's been so supportive of the film since. Jodie has done, you know, days and weeks of doing Q&As and talking to legal associations, talking to the Muslim Council of America, talking to every 
journalist going, she's really sort of followed through in her commitment to the, to the story. Um, so, yeah, I've got nothing but admiration for her. But she's absolutely brilliant in it because she has this wonderful balance between being this ice-cold toughie and then when she's reading the what, what he's writing about being tortured and everything, she sort of has that breakdown moment which is mm. incredibly moving i mean i you know i almost couldn't watch it i found it so harrowing the, the real nancy hollander didn't look quite as tough as jody <laughs> managed to look in the film so i was interested in that because yeah, she that's... looks really tough doesn't she with that slash of dark red lipstick and everything yeah i mean i think that one of the interesting things about jody's response when i first showed her the script was you know i don't i don't want to be as nice as you've made me I want to be be meaner. I think she should be really mean. And I don't want, I don't want to tell the audience anything really about my personal life. Because of course, it's always a, it's always a thing, particularly I think with female characters that there's an expectation somehow that you know about their love life, their children, their, you know, why are they so obsessed with their work or whatever. And I think Jodie's instinct and which I'm so glad that we followed through on was I'm a woman who's obsessed with her work. And this is not a film about, you know, me and my heartbreak or my whatever. We'll feel all of that sort of backstory in the performance. And she was absolutely right. I think you do know exactly who this person is. Um, And she wanted to be tough because she wanted that exactly the experience that you've described, which is that you start off thinking this woman is an ice queen and then you see her crack. And it's much, much more moving to go on that bigger, that bigger arc. But, but, but the real Nancy is, is incredibly tough, but just in a slightly different way. And, and, who the character is in the film is kind of based on what Muhammadu himself said to me about about Nancy. He said, even now with some resentment, you know, she didn't believe me for three years. She didn't. She thought I was guilty, and I was just an interesting case. And she was looking forward to getting into court with it because she wanted to try some new techniques. And so there's, you know, and he so felt, he felt like he, a sample. Like sort he of, felt like a, a sample. And he felt, and I think yeah. also lawyers like that. You know, j- j- and Nancy's been doing this since the early seventies, and most, as she'll gladly say, ninety plus percent of the people she represents are guilty, and so she doesn't necessarily want to you know, have to think. Oh yes, they're, they're are they innocent? Are they guilty? Do I care? She's like, I don't care. It's not about that. It's about me, you know, giving them their right to to legal defence and. And and she really, really believes that. So I think he he just yearned, and this is what we sort of dramatized in the film, he yearned to be treated, you know, as a human being and to be told, you know, oh, we believe you. You know, you're, you must be innocent. You're so lovely. And she refused to do that for years and years. And eventually she did. And at that point, they became the closest of friends. So you, you said earlier, Kevin, that Jodie Foster is political. I started off doing documentary because I think, I wanted to be a journalist, I think, but nobody, nobody would give me a job at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and documentary, I just sort of started making them for fun and then found I really liked them and that you got to be nosy and ask people inappropriate questions and <laughs> there was no comeback. And... Uh, and I think it's that nosiness that has kept me going. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit political, but I'm not massively, I'm not massively political. I mean, interestingly, one of the surprises to me about the way this film has been received is that it has been kind of quite polarizing, but not in the way I expected. I thought it would be polarizing in that I thought the right in America, the Republican in America would really object to it. And there's a little been a little bit of that, but actually it's more 
the kind of left, who the, the, the sort of liberal press feel it's not hard enough on America. Oh, really? and, uh, oh, it's yes. pretty hard on America. Well, no, well it's, quite, it's, quite, it's been very interesting. I, I hadn't... I, I think you that's know, fascinating. Coming from documentaries, you see, my attitude is always, well, everyone has their reason. You know, everybody... You know, there are very few genuine villains in the world. There's a lot of people who think they're doing the right thing. And I think that's what fascinates me about Benedict Cumberbatch's character, who is um, the prosecution lawyer in the case and who is a... Republican Christian lawyer, uh, military man through and through, and his one of his best friends died in 9-11, co-piloting the, one of the planes that went into the Twin Towers. And amazingly, the, even though he had that personal connection, they put him in charge of Mohamedou's case. And they basically said to him, you know, this is the guy who probably recruited the people who killed your friend. So he had, you know, he had the biggest sort of personal grudge to, 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 to work with. But slowly through working on the case, he came to realize that the evidence against Mohammed was obtained using torture. And he stood up against the crowd and said, you know, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. You see, I think in a way that was a film strength that you didn't sort of slag off um, anybody in power. I mean, it was quite shocking suddenly to see because the film, you know, not to give too much away, but you think he's going to get out and then you just have this chilling thing on the screen. You know, the Obama administration appealed and back he went in again, slammed back in for another mm. eight years or so. And I find that much more shocking. You know, because America, as we all know, is so partisan, just you know, just in, in, involving Obama's name in this, I think is is kind of controversial to some people. I was wondering how it would go down in uh, the US. So that is really interesting. I mean, I just wondered finally, is, is there a moment of kind of films with political, whether it's a small P or big P message? I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, in lockdown, I've watched, you know, the Chicago 7. I've watched the Mauritanian. I've watched uh, the Mangrove 9. I mean, there are a lot of films with purpose, it seems. But maybe I'm maybe I'm imagining that. Maybe it's like that every year. No, I think I think you're right. I think there is something going on. I mean, I think it it's obviously part of the same moment that's produced Black Lives Matter and Me Too and all of these kind of issues. I think I think I think younger people are really, you know, interested in politics in a way that isn't about Westminster or isn't about the White House or Washington. You know, they're interested. I mean, I'm obviously not saying anything very original in saying that, but it's but it, I think it's I think it's true. I think people are very engaged. Should people be locked up without a trial? And actually not like questioning that. those. No, but questioning those issues, those, those fundamental basics, I don't think has been done for a long time in, 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 in wider society. So I think it's it's maybe it's just time that people actually look at those things again and, and, and wonder about them. Brilliant. Well, look, we've, um, your PR's had a nervous breakdown because... Uh, no, it's, I, this was the <laughs> only thing. I, 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 this is my last thing today, or I've got something in an hour, but other than that, I'm good. So it was nice to talk to you, and I, I cannot wait to get on the phone to Natasha Galloway. Yes. <laughs> just to say that Kevin's agent is a very old friend of mine, by a strange coincidence. <laughs> an amazing and woman and a wonderful human being it's one of these terrible podcasts where i have to deal with people who are wildly more successful than me who are my contemporaries but you know ed i wish that was the i wish that was the case <laughs> brilliant thank you so much kevin thank you very much that was a fun chat thank you 
We wanted to round off today on an upbeat and happy note for the arts. You've probably heard of the Jerwood Collection and of the Philanthropic Jerwood Foundation, but you might not know that the Foundation's contribution to the arts is monumental. In the last 30 years, it's donated over £106 million to support British visual and performing arts. Now, the Foundation was established by John Jerwood in 1977 and set up by Alan Grieve, CBE. After John Jerwood died suddenly in 1991, Alan became chairman. This year marks Alan's 30th year at the helm and to celebrate the foundation has announced the Jerwood Blue Sky Fund a massive £1 million donation to the Theatre Artists Fund and Help Musicians, both of which were set up to help struggling freelancers We were going to have Alan with us today but the internet was playing havoc his end so sadly we had to give up. Frustratingly Ed and I also recorded everything I've just said together but there is clearly a gremlin in this week's podcast because our recording totally disappeared Anyway, the Blue Sky donation was made just as we're all marking a year since Covid forced theatres and music venues to close. It's an absolute lifeline for thousands and I know that Sam Mendes, who is director and co-founder of the Theatre Artists Fund, has expressed his gratitude very publicly, as has James Aintikoff, chief executive of Help Musicians. And moving on quickly to theatre, much is due to open in May. From Romeo and Juliet at my favourite theatre in the whole world, Regent's Park Open Air Theatre, there's also a production at The Globe to Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cinderella. Now, you might remember we had Andrew Lloyd Webber on this podcast earlier last year talking about Cinderella that's been written by... Emerald Fennell, so that's going to be an absolute must. Now, we've also heard that the eagerly anticipated To Kill a Mockingbird has been delayed again, but whatever you do, kill to get a ticket. It's been adapted by Aaron Sorkin, who did The West Wing, and stars Rafe Spall as Atticus Finch, so it's going to be just about the hottest play in town. And can we also remind you that the Gilbert and George show... New Normal Pictures at White Cube in Mason's Yard is only on till the end of April, so make sure not to miss it. But that's all we've got time for this week. As usual, you can go to countryandtownhouse.co.uk to find our Great British Brands podcast with Michael Heyman and our sister podcast, House Guest for All Lovers of Interior Design. This week, Carol Annette talks to Nicholas Rue, of Reeve Ghosh, who specialises in designing investment properties for high net worth clients. Thank you for listening to So Much of Me Without Ed. Don't forget about our newsletters, both the Great British Brands April newsletter and the weekly one from Country and Townhouse are on our website and you'll find them at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter. See you next week. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>